if you are keen lectionary watchers, and let's face it, who isn't, you may have realized that we've got a bit of a mix this morning. The reading from Jonah uh, is set in our lectionary for today, but if you happen to be an Anglican, you would only use it if you have at least three services. The passage from John is the gospel reading, the main gospel reading for today, but it doesn't appear in our Methodist lectionary at all today. I thought it's a bit ironic that on this week of prayer for Christian unity, we don't even have uh, the same lectionary passages, but hey, let's look on the bright side. We get to pick the best of each, because for my money, the two passages which we have heard are amongst my favorites in the whole of Scripture. And the readings are linked by a key theme of obedience and what happens next. When God's word is spoken, when God's word is heard, what do you do? How and where do you do it? And what happens next? I don't have a vested interest anymore in this, so I'm going to recommend a couple of books to you. Firstly, a book which I first read many years ago by Bishop John Pritchard, a book called Living Jesus, and uh, a book which is all about the excitement which comes from knowing Jesus. It's recommended in the front cover by uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who said, it vividly conveys how opening our hearts to Christ can release the transformative power of love into our broken and needy world. And how many books do we need that can do that? And this does it in a powerful way. A study of Jesus and his ways in the world. The second book is a much tougher read, um, but I've read it this week for at least a third time, thinking about Jonah. It's got um, a rather unwieldy title. It's called Under the Unpredictable Plant. And for those who know the story of Jonah, you will recognize that that's a reference to the final chapter following on from our reading in which Jonah sulks, seeing what's happened to Nineveh. And uh, this book is recommended again in these words. The book provides refreshment for all who, fearfully or gladly, reluctantly or eagerly, sense the lure of God's calling. So these are very definitely two books about discipleship, two books about how to discern the will of God, how to follow Jesus in our daily pilgrimage. And both Jonah and Mary have things to teach us about that. So Jonah first. The book of Jonah is much more a character study than it is a prophecy as such, although he's usually lumped as one of the prophets. And you might think, well, the theme of obedience is um, hardly to the fore in this story, because at first God says, go, and Jonah goes, except he goes in the very opposite direction to that in which God had instructed him, because more than anywhere else in the world, Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was anathema. Nineveh was, in, Nineveh was inhabited by the enemy. Nineveh was in Assyria, modern-day Iraq. In fact, it's been identified probably with the city of Mosul, 
today. And Jonah despised the place, despised its people. And so he went in the very opposite direction. He went west to Tarshish. Where was Tarshish? Well, Gibraltar maybe, Spain. Somewhere exotic, somewhere where he could sail into the sunset. The very opposite to what God had commanded him. The very western edge of the known world, as far away as he could get from what God was asking him to do. A place perhaps of more exciting options, more freedom to choose, more self-gratification. Now, fair enough, I've built a lot of symbolism into those places, but I think that's why the book is there within our scripture. Don't let's get too sidetracked into whether it's all about historic events or whether it's a parable. Whatever else it has been or is, it is a parable about mission in our times, and don't let's get sidetracked onto less important issues. Because the bit that stretches credibility, of course, is the storm at sea and the great fish which intervened in Jonah's plans and brought him back to square one, brought him back to first base, where the word of the Lord was renewed to him, exactly the same as before. You've not escaped. The job is still waiting to be done, and you are the person to do it. And this time, Jonah obeyed. This time, he went in the right direction. He went to Nineveh. And he was incredibly successful and effective in the task which he'd been given. In fact, he is far more successful than he intended or expected. And his very success was a cause of his grumbling and grousing. He soon gets into a sulk about it. The Ninevites, as far as he was concerned, were beyond the pale. He didn't believe that the grace of God should extend as far as the Ninevites, for goodness sake. He never wanted them to experience God's mercy. So the book of Jonah ends with a question mark. It ends with God addressing Jonah as he's sitting there sulking about what's happened, moaning about the grace of God having been extended to places where he didn't think it should have been extended, and God challenges him with that question with which the book ends. Don't you think that I should have had mercy on this great city. Don't you think that I am entitled to extend my grace to whoever I will? And the great skill of the biblical writers in this on many other occasions is that because the book ends with a question mark, we are left to provide our own answer. If we are there with Jonah sulking because of what God's done through us or expects us to do, then that question mark confronts us. How will we answer? So Jonah's left to ponder the question, and we still write the answers now. So at first sight, the New Testament passage seems very different. We're in more familiar territory. We're in the stories of Jesus, a wedding, a celebration, a time of great joy and happiness, but something goes wrong. The pivotal character is Mary, and uh, the facts of the story are well known to us, but I want you to imagine Mary reflecting on this experience after some years, looking back, thinking about what happened, thinking about how she responded, thinking about all the events of that day, and just turning over in her mind its significance. Jean is going to 
help us to enter that imagining. And perhaps we can just shut our eyes and transport ourselves back to Mary's experience. I don't know quite what I expected him to do. I suppose I was embarrassed, really. Not for myself, but for our hosts. They were good friends of mine, after all. And I couldn't understand how they'd miscalculated so badly to run out of wine so soon. That just didn't happen. And I hated the idea that people would think they were mean or stingy in their hospitality. I could tell some of the guests were starting to get a bit grumpy. And really, the whole situation was starting to look quite awkward. When I told my lad Jesus that there was no wine left, he was quite sharp with me. Almost to say, what's that got to do with me? Anyway, I've learned by now that there was no point arguing with him. So I nodded my head to the servers and said, just do what he says. All I saw then was that Jesus had a quiet word with them. There was a lot of scurrying around, and the next thing, everyone's cup is full again. Everyone's laughing and talking about how their refill is loads better than what they had at first. Hey, that's different, they said, saving the best till now. The mood had changed in just a couple of minutes. Now the whole place was buzzing, everyone amazed, everyone laughing, everyone congratulating the family. And Jesus... He just watched the faces, smiled that quiet smile of his, then strolled over to have his cup refilled. The servers looked at him a bit oddly, but I didn't know till much later what he'd said to them. The only thing we all knew was that this wine was like no other we'd ever tasted. And I knew that somehow Jesus was responsible. As time went on, I realised more and more that I'd never been able to pin him down, to bring him inside my ability to understand. That should have been no surprise to me, given the circumstances of his birth, or remembering the 12-year-old deep in conversation with the priests in the temple, and later on, the things he said about mothers and families and taking care of each other. But after that wedding, I think I did realise something for the first time. It was when I was helping to clear up, and most people had gone, that one of the servers told me what it was that Jesus had told them to do, to fill the wine cups from the water jars. So when Jesus is around, nothing is ordinary anymore. Water becomes wine. That's what he does. Takes ordinary stuff and transformed it, transforms it into the best you can imagine. And I've come to see 
That's what he intends for people too. Jonah and Mary had some things in common, although there was a lot that was different. They had in common this, that they were both at the scene of the action. When Jonah did eventually reach Nineveh, he didn't denounce it from outside the city walls. The narrator tells us that he traveled a day's journey into the city. Now, if it took three days to walk around it, you were pretty much in the heart of the city by the time you'd wandered for a day. He was in the city. He'd seen its sights and heard its sounds and smelled its smelled, smells and, and, and sensed what was going on. He identified himself with the place before he opened his mouth to speak. And Mary also, we may perhaps gauge from the story, was very much at the heart of her community a guest at a wedding, maybe a family wedding, maybe friends, who knows. She, she wasn't there on the edge of things. She was, she was at the heart of the matter, involved from within. It all makes me think that when I grew up in my little village chapel in the 1950s, as I look back, it seems that we were very much on the edge of things, really. Folk in our chapel didn't approve of things like dancing or raffles, or alcohol, to name but a few. So if there was a risk that any of these things might be found at an event or an occasion, we didn't go. I suspect others in the community would have found it quite easy to say what it was the chapel folk were against. But I'm not sure they would have found it quite as easy to say what we were for. And that was a pity not a biblical model. Secondly, both Jonah and Mary were witnesses to unexpected change. Jonah witnessed the mass conversion of the population of Nineveh. Even the king followed the movement. Now, if we had read that the king started it, the king repented and all the people followed, that would have made sort of human sense because nobody would have been wanted to be out of step with the king. But the king joined the movement of repentance because this was a, a remarkable city-wide turning. And Mary, of course, witnessed the change from no wine to abundant wine, and not just abundant wine, but the best wine. Both of them witnessed the power of God at work, one despite his attitude, one in fulfillment of her expectations. And third, both characters thought long and hard on what they had seen. The beginning of Jonah chapter 4 tells us about how he went outside the city on the east. Pick that up as you read, on the east, because he'd approached it from the west, and he'd gone into the center, so presumably he'd gone right through the city. And now he sat sulking on the hillside in the east to see, the writer said, what would happen to the city and its inhabitants. He thought long and hard, but his conclusions were bitter. His conclusions were self-centered. He felt that he'd been made a fool of. He felt that he had proclaimed destruction, but instead God had shown mercy. And he was angry 
angry for himself and angry at God. Mary, we read in Luke chapter 2, after the birth of Jesus and the visits of the shepherd and the wise men and whoever else, whatever else had happened in those early years, we read that his mother treasured these things and pondered them in her heart. I'm sure that thoughtful outlook and prayerful care didn't stop at the end of Luke chapter 2. So two very different characters, two very different scenarios. What does all of this say to us in the context of our service in the community and our mission to the community? How do these stories shape us for God's purposes amongst us? Jonah was a reluctant prophet who perhaps began for a time to learn the art of obedience but in the narrative as we have it, in the book that bears his name, his heart remained hard and unchanged. As I said earlier, the fact that the book ends with a question mark sets before us a choice of ways. And in the life of Jonah, we can see rash disobedience. We can see reluctant, heartless obedience. Who knows whether after the book was closed, there was a change of heart. We write the version that we decide. But Mary, on the other hand, was prepared to trust Jesus even when she couldn't understand him, even when his ways and his words seemed harsh to her. She knew him better than anyone. She loved him more than anyone. Therefore, she trusted him. Knowing Jesus brings us to the question, with or without hashtag, do you know him? Now, the Skipton Church's initiative under this logo excites me because it's all about the Mary model rather than the Jonah model. And just as a sideline, but a significant one, the book Living Jesus by Bishop John Pritchard that I mentioned gives you the origin of that phrase, do you know him, in, in its current usage. It was part of a, an extempore prayer by a black Pentecostal pastor who rejoiced in the name of Shadrach Meshach Lockridge and uh, who prayed it as part of a prayer which runs onto four pages uh, of spontaneous outpouring of poetic uh, imagery and from time to time, the challenging phrase recurs, do you know him? Do you know him? This Jesus, do you know him? And why this initiative excites me is because it's all about the Mary model rather than the Jonah model. It's not about professionals being airlifted in from somewhere else on a hit-and-run mission. It's about each of us asking ourselves the question, do I know him? And if so, what am I doing as a result. It's not about being an expert learning a technique. It's not about marshalling persuasive arguments. It's not about shepherding people into a big venue to hear a hotshot preacher. It's not about any kind of slick professionalism. It's about each of us taking time to get to know Jesus better. It's about listening to people's stories it's about being willing, when the time is apt, to tell my story and say why Jesus matters to me. 
It's about calling us to be witnesses, not propagandists. Friends, not antagonists. Listeners first, talkers next. About being gentle rather than forceful. So the initiative calls us into familiar places to let it be seen how Jesus is shaping our lives and how others may find their lives transformed as a result of an encounter with him. Do you know him? At last we have a chance to show that important as these things are, it's not our church loyalty, not our denominational label, not our intellect or lack of it, not our achievements or lack of them. They're not the main thing. The main thing is that it's all about Jesus. And unless it is knowing Jesus and loving Jesus and following Jesus, which underpins all our efforts to serve and to evangelize, unless our relationship with him is what stimulates these things, it's all just empty words and gestures. Mary's directions to the servers show her as the link, the link between the problem and the solution. What were her trusting words? What did she say to the servers? Do whatever he tells you. Just do it. And I guess Jesus is expecting us to do a few things too. Just do what he tells you. This is a confidence born of her intimate knowledge of Jesus. She may not understand him all the time, but she knows he will never let her down. So as the question is posed for the folk of Skipton to consider, we ask it of ourselves too. A question mark for us, as there was for Jonah. Do you know him? And if so, what happens next?